Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been generously supported by PPAI. PPAI is the world's largest and oldest not-for-profit association serving the $20 billion promotional products industry. They advocate for the industry's more than 34,000 businesses and its nearly half a million professionals. PPAI is the host of the PPAI Expo, the industry's largest trade show, and is the industry's go-to source on product safety and compliance and professional development and certification programs. For more information, visit them at ppai.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by my good friend and fellow chef, Danny Rosen, president of Brand Fuel Promotions. In today's episode, we get the chance to interview one of the industry's most familiar names, Bill Petrie. Whether you subscribe to his riveting blog at brandovatemarketing.com or follow his pursuits on social media, Bill has truly made a dent in the industry. Bill has over 15 years working in executive leadership positions at leading promotional products distributors. In 2014, he launched Brandovate, the first executive team outsourcing company solely focused on helping small promotional products companies responsibly grow their business. In March of 2015, Bill began a partnership with Proforma to assist their owners growing their individual distributors. A speaker at numerous industry events, a serial creator of content marketing, and current member of the board of directors for the Promotional Products Association of the Mid-South, Bill has extensive experience in coaching sales teams, creating successful marketing campaigns, developing operational policies and procedures, creating and delivering RFP responses, and successfully presenting promotional solutions to Fortune 500 clients. Bill lives in Nashville with his wife, Sandy, and two twin boys. Bill, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Really happy to be here. So, Bill, I want to throw a question at you about where it all started. How did you get your start in the promotional industry? You know, it's interesting. I always find this question interesting, and I think I find the answers even more interesting. I started off in year 2000 with Halo Branded Solutions, about eight months before a exceedingly public bankruptcy proceeding. I had no idea what I was getting into at the time. I had moved to New York from Dallas, and for a few years, the company I was working for at the time outside of the industry was experiencing some financial difficulties, and, and I could read the writing on the wall, and I had always wanted to get into the promotional products industry. My mother was a welcome wagon hostess for anybody who remembers the welcome wagon, but if you don't, they were basically housewives who would work out of their home and work with the Chamber of Commerce in their local areas, and when someone new moved to the neighborhood, they would provide a basket of goodies, which were promotional products, highlighting area companies, dry cleaners, handymen, so on and so forth. 
So I'd always wanted to get in the industry, and I interviewed at Halo Branded Solutions, and they were dumb enough to hire me. Hmm. They certainly were. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you, Bill? They were. <laughs> no, I wasn't, but that's okay. They were. Hey, I still stand by the fact that in talking to my boss at the time, he really needed to get on vacation, and he needed someone in the director of sales role. So there you go. Bill, it's interesting to me that you joined Halo back in those tumultuous days, right around the time of the bankruptcy. What did you learn? Like, given that that was your introduction to the promotional products industry, like, what what did you learn coming out of that? Because most people don't have that introduction to the industry. It's not quite as tumultuous as I say. No, it was a fire drill and a different one every single day. I got a crash course more in business management and working with people and really the promotional products industry from working with salespeople who are certainly disgruntled and disenfranchised by the bankruptcy and how it was impacting them and certainly to suppliers who didn't really understand what bankruptcy meant. Hmm. For example, I remember working with a number of suppliers that really had a very difficult time, and I understand why, but they had a difficult time understanding that even though Halo owed them money, Halo couldn't pay that money because as part of the bankruptcy proceeding, the old company ceased to exist. And so everything that happened prior to the bankruptcy date was with the old company. And that had to be adjudicated through federal bankruptcy court. Right. And so I remember negotiating with suppliers saying, you know, you owe us X amount of dollars, we're not shipping anything. And, you know, unfortunately it would have been illegal for Halo to pay any of that money until the entire bankruptcy was adjudicated. So for the first two and a half, three years in the industry, it was really a lot of triage more than anything else and yeah. trying to, for lack of a better term, hold the company together. Right. So take us up from those early days with Halo to 2015, if you just want to give a, a quick overview sure. as to where you worked and just explain the road to us. Yeah, you bet. So worked at Halo through 2008 and really enjoyed my time there. Ended up with what I think is one of the most difficult jobs in the industry for the last four years I was there, which was recruiting. So recruiting salespeople to join Halo's platform. And... It was, like I said, the most difficult job, I think, in the industry because there's so many value propositions that really are about the same, and it's always a buyer's market. So you have you know, six or ten fishing poles in the same pond all looking to get that one big fish. So it was a very difficult job, and it was something, candidly, I did not enjoy at all. I felt that it was a lot of the, uh, the recruits were... And, and understandably a little bit, but very duplicitous. They would use my offer at Halo to get a better deal where they were or with a different distributor. And so that was just very discouraging to me, and I just really didn't enjoy it. So in 2008, I left Halo and went to Summit Marketing mm. as their VP of Sales. And that's where I really started kind of finding my stride a little bit in the industry. I was working with salespeople across the country, working on RFPs with them, developing presentation tools, and then from a, an operations side, uh, helping redesign the uh, compensation plan and, and doing all sorts of things like that. So really being a true vice president of sales and, and, and really enjoyed it. And then in 2011, a recruiter called me and asked if I'd be interested in starting a promotional products division within, at the time, the fifth largest office products company in the United States. And when I heard I could start a business with somebody else's money, that sounded 
pretty good to me. Mm. Then when they said they were in Nashville, then it sounded really good to hmm. me. So I took a job with a company called Guy Brown and started their promotional products division and was able to build it up from zero to about two and a half, a little less than two and a half million dollars in about two years. Unfortunately, with all the shifts in the office products industry, Guy Brown had to affiliate their office products business, which was with Office Max. They ended up affiliating that with Staples. And so uh, as part of that deal, they could no longer pursue new business development within the promotional product space. So as a friend of mine said, you're getting punished for succeeding. <laughs> so unfortunately, I found myself out of a job. And then I thought, now what do I do? I'm 44 years old. I have a certain skill set, but what do I do with it? And that was the genesis of Brand of Eight, that I really enjoy working with small and medium-sized companies and, and individuals to help them achieve their goals, their dreams. And so that was how I started Brand of Eight. Bill, I, I got one more question for you on that note, and then I want to turn it over to Danny afterwards. You know, in the time that I've known you, the last you know five or six years, we've become good friends, and I've always admired you for I think one defining character trait of yours, and that's positivity. Because it's been a, I think, an interesting and if I was to be maybe less charitable, a, a challenging, rocky road for you over the last couple of years with regard to Guy Brown. And that was really challenging. And I know with uh, some other opportunities that weren't quite the right fit to leading into Brandivate and then, shall I say, you breaking your Achilles heel or did you break your Achilles heel or? It was a <laughs> you do? full rupture. Full rupture. Okay. Maybe that's the expression. So, so my question is, most mortal men and women, if they had to go through what you went through over the last couple of years, I just think would have said, I'm done. But you stuck with it and are now at the top of your game with this fantastic company that's found great product market fit and you're the toast of the industry. Like, How did you get there? Talk to me about the power of positivity. I, I'm a believer that being positive is a choice. You know, I've lived in Dallas, I've lived in New York City, I've lived outside of New York, I've lived in Chicago, and I've had people who would say, gosh, how could you be happy living in New York, or how could you be happy living in Chicago? And then I've had people in larger cities say, how could you be happy living in a small town like Nashville? And I'm a believer I'll be happy or miserable based on my own attitude. You know, yeah, some have happened to me, but if I look back on the road I could have bailed out at any time, but what good would that have done me? What good would that have done my family? And what example would I be teaching my kids? Because you know what? Sometimes life stinks. Look, I was simply skipping, yes, skipping in Las Vegas, and I blew out my Achilles. What are you going to do? You just soldier on. I could have turtled up. In fact, I believe I had a meeting with Danny the next morning at 8.30 in the morning. He would have completely understood had I said, man, I blew out my Achilles last night. I'm going back to Nashville but I soldiered on because that's just what I think people should do. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not a big believer in quotes that are life-changing, but the one I will say I do believe in is generally people don't get much more than they can handle. You know, I'm not going to lie. There's been some hard times. There's been some tears with my family and friends, but I've been so supported by people like you, uh, Danny, uh, Dana Zezo comes to mind, a million other people that have been so supportive of me, believers in me, I feel like I'd almost be letting them down if I gave up, letting you guys down if I gave up. So I've just, I think, been probably more open with my failures, for lack of a better term, or challenges than a lot of people, and I think that's a good thing. 
because it allows people to see, hey, people do, you know, we live in a, a society where every media post, everybody's kids are perfect, seems like everybody goes on vacation every other week, nothing bad happens. And, you know, I don't, I worry about what we're teaching our kids with that stuff because bad stuff does happen. And it's how you get up, dust yourself off, and push forward, maybe in a slightly different direction, that really matters. So I, I, to me, it, it, the positivity has just always been a choice. It's a choice. Yeah, That's good stuff, man. That's really good stuff. I, uh, I saw a T-shirt the other day you guys will appreciate. This guy was wearing it at a show. It said, uh, I'm much more interesting on the Internet. And I just, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. You know, we're, we're living a real life in the real world, and we've got our social media lives. And you're ultimately being vulnerable by sharing with people some of that stuff. Probably opens you up to new opportunities. And and uh, I said this on the Kirby Show, the Marketing Joy Show, that the trust is the currency of the new economy. And once you start with that being honest and real on social media and in the real world, and you're transparent and and vulnerable and share some of your Achilles heels, others do the same. Then you build trust and relationships from there. So kudos to you, Bill. A question around the uh, the starting a new business or having a small business and really getting going. I think a lot of listeners have either been there or they're now or considering you know, starting their own business. Uh, they've got the entrepreneurial bug. And it's a really crowded space out there in the world of, of marketing and selling. I think we'd all agree with that. And so that said, in terms of generating new business and getting this fairly new brand, brand of a marketing out in front of arts and, and really what's, what's working for you and, and then also what's not working for you? I'll tell you what's working for me first. Blogging has been one of the best things I've ever done. You know, we all have gifts that we're given and one of mine happens to be writing. And I decided to channel that into blogging and just throwing myself out there. You mentioned something a moment ago about you know being honest and real and I think over the last couple of years is the first time I've really allowed myself to be honest and be real. Not that I wasn't honest before, but I put my thoughts out there. And I started doing that with the blog and very much of just, hey, this is what I think and if people like it, great. And if they don't, that's okay too. It's not like I'm scorching earth, but this is what I think. I think that's been one of the keys to brain of success thus far. It's that commitment to consistency and tying it in with my social media profile. So I, you know, I'm at a point now where I'm almost at 100 blogs I've posted in the last year. Wow. And That's yeah, amazing. And I do it every Monday and Thursday. And you know what? And I've made peace fact, not all of them are home runs. Some of them flat out probably stink. But I think more often than not, they're, they're pretty good, hopefully not too derivative. And then every once in a while, there's a really good one in there. And that's okay. I made peace with that very early on that not everyone had to be this life-altering four paragraphs of promotional product goodness. It really just needed to be consistent. So it comes out every Monday and Thursday, and I think I'm at the point now where if I didn't put one out on a Monday or Thursday, I think people would be going, what the heck's going on? Or at least some people would be. So I tied it in with social media, and that's worked out very well for me. I think participating has been huge for me. I know my, my wife and I try to teach our kids is one of the keys to life is showing up. And I, I really like to think I've shown up a lot over the last couple of years from being on a regional association board, speaking at uh, regional and, and events, and I'll be speaking a few times at PPI Expo in 2016. I'm speaking at SKUCon in Woo! 2016. <laughs> Keep it down, Dan. And, and then the participation in Promo Kitchen. 
<laughs> and then the participation in Promo Kitchen too, as as a non-chef contributing member, it's been important to just kind of get get myself put myself out there. When I started Brandivate, one thing I wanted to make sure I was for a long time was really uncomfortable, <laughs> really uncomfortable. And so I would I I would tell people, yes, I will do it, and I'd commit to deadlines because I knew I would have to hold myself accountable to it. So all that's been been real helpful. And the last one I think is just being authentic. I'm I'm me. Take or leave it. I've known you guys for, for a while. I'm not any different writing than I am talking, than I am standing up in front of a group speaking. And I'd like to think I have a, a fairly resonant voice that when people know me well enough, they read my blogs, they can hear me actually like almost I'm reading it to them almost in my own voice. And I think that speaks to being authentic. So those are things that have worked for me. The things that haven't worked for me, I, I know things that wouldn't work for me and I haven't tried them. And that's been direct marketing. I haven't done any of that to the, the populate. And maybe it would work. I just haven't done it. I've been so busy with the way I have gone to market, and it's been successful, and, and I've been able to monetize it. I haven't focused on anything else. Oh, that's good stuff, man. I one comment and then one follow-up question. I, I think you exemplify the, the type of person that Promo Kitchen is trying to get into the community. And, I, I you know, the sharing that you've done, I know you're on the mentor side, and you really have been a standout volunteer. And it's nice to have somebody like you on the show. And I just think it's nice to publicly thank those that are contributing to the community. We're all volunteer, nonprofit organization trying to help people and educate folks in the industry. And you're a big part of that, so thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love it. It's an honor. Yeah, thanks. So let's talk about sales archetypes. Because you work with so many salespeople and you are help trying to really grow sales teams as well as I think probably starting from sort of the individual level, I think we would agree that what used to work even 10 years ago doesn't work well anymore. And so I want to ask you about sales archetypes today. What's working in this sort of digital, what are yellow pages? Nobody, nobody answers the phone and lets your call go to voicemail selling atmosphere now. What are, you, what are you coaching people in terms of how to be the best salesperson in terms of archetypes? You know, you hit the nail on the head. What worked years ago, even five years ago, let alone 10, 15, 20 years ago, probably doesn't work today. You know, we for so long have been an industry of, I will build it and you can come here. You know, I'm going to show you products and you're going to be amazed. I think even as recently as 10 years ago, people were just amazed and astonished by the fact that wow, you can put my logo on a pen? You can design a custom t-shirt for me? The internet's changed all that, and, and now our end users are far more savvy and knowledgeable than I think some of the salespeople out there. So, you know, we don't have that built-in magic and mystery we used to have of promotional products. So I think now people and salespeople who are really knocking it out of the park, really killing it, are teachers, they're helpers, and they create an, an experience for their client's target audience. And that could be packaging, it could be leveraging technology, or really telling a story. I'm a big believer that people don't buy bullet points, they buy stories, but the, the real thing, what I, what I believe is the people are winning our space now, they fully get that people don't buy products, they buy experiences. And so it's up to us as an industry to cater to our audience instead of trying to pull our audience to the way we used to do things. Now, we need to be where our audience is, and that means communicating to them in, in maybe ways we're a little uncomfortable with, Twitter, instant messaging, or text messaging, or 
whatever in interacting with them and where they're at. We have to go where they're at instead of trying to keep pulling them to where we want them to be. How's uh, is telekinesis working for you? You know, telekinesis does work, but I can no longer bend a spoon since I blew out my Achilles, unfortunately. Oh. Somehow that got affected. Wow. I think it's just old age, Bill. I think that's, I think that's the problem. Could be. <laughs> I, I want to build on Danny's question with regard to the sales archetypes and ask you a question about your thoughts on the future of the affiliate slash franchise style organizations. And I'll set up the question here with a little bit of background. And when you think about how the industry got its start and you think about how the industry has grown in the last, say, 20 years, a lot of that growth has been tied to the affiliate slash franchise style organizations like the Proformas and the, the Geigers and the Halos, so on and so forth. What do you think the future of that model is, Bill, in terms of these traditional business models? How flexible are they for the future? Or in other words, when you think about the threats that we face as an industry with supply chain disintermediation, with the internet that's knocking at our door, with the next generation that's coming up with new models for this industry, how do you see the traditional top 40 franchise style organizations faring over the next five or 10 years? You know, I think you'll see their growth start to slow from a recruiting perspective. I think it's getting harder and harder to recruit out there, even though I think it was hard, you know, eight or seven years ago or 10 years ago when I was doing it. I think it's harder now. I think for the larger distributor models, there's always going to be a place for them because they provide a valuable service to small individuals who want kind of that security of someone being able to finance their orders and provide customer service, and they're willing to give a certain amount of their profits for that service. I think they're going to struggle in ways of trying to adapt, whereas smaller companies historically are much quicker to adapt, to understand change and see the curve ahead. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of the, the larger distributors, I think you're going to see their kind of average population age a little bit. Uh, a lot of the, the larger distributors cater to the, the people who've been selling the way they've always sold, and they drop off catalogs, and, and not that there's anything bad with that. I just don't think there's a real deep financial future in it. I think if a larger distributor can figure out ways to add value to their clients, meaning their salespeople or their franchise owners, those are the ones that are going to succeed, the ones that provide tools to help their individual salespeople go to where their clients are and make the experience very user-friendly. So I think it's a struggling model, and, but, they're going to, but they'll probably still continue to grow because of the acquisitions we've seen over the past couple of years. I mean, I think five years ago, I would never have, have imagined one top 40 bought by another one, and that was, you know, Halo acquiring Newton for almost pennies on the dollar earlier this year. Right. So against that backdrop where you talk about the, the traditional approach and people that have been selling for a long time and maybe resistant to some of this change, how has your experience been in the pro forma world where you must come across some of the traditional types that are maybe less open to your preachings, and then you must have other people that are gung-ho and all for it. Has that been a, an interesting challenge since you started working with them? 
It has been. But one of the things I'm able to do generally is create some metaphors where people get it. So I've talked to plenty of, of salespeople who've been in the industry 20, 30, 40 years. And if you just kind of relate to them, look, do you relate to your grandkids different than you related to your own children? And they'll tell stories about how they use FaceTime or they've used a text messaging, they use you know, emojis or emoticons. Then they start saying, okay, I get it. My audience is changing and I need to change and shift with them. Because if, if people don't do that, you, you will suffer and you may just kind of extinguish yourself from the industry. So it, it is a challenge, but I think it's just slowly talking to people and really helping them understand that it's not this generation that we're, we're working with now is not the end of the world any more than their generation was the end of the world when the, the Beatles first came out or Elvis first came out. It's just things change, things evolve, and if we want to stay relevant, if I want to stay relevant, I have to evolve with it. I have to learn to use and engage people in ways I never would have thought of five years ago. I love what Gary Vaynerchuk does. He says, Gary V says in some of his sessions, he, he surveys the room and he asks the room, he says something like, how many people in this room received a text from their children at one point in time years ago. Little Kirby, you will not text me. You will pick up the phone when I call you. You will call me back. We will have a conversation. And a lot of people raise their hands in the room. And then he says, how's that working for you now? And, and I just love that. He yeah. also he, he does the same with Facebook. How many people, you know, how many ever years ago, eight years ago, said they'd never get on Facebook? And how's that working for you now? And I think that's just interesting. The shifts are happening fast, and as we get older, we need to start to really identify and, and embrace what those shifts are instead of trying to fight the battle. My business partner, Robert Fiveash, always talks about face-to-face -face as just being so critical. And he's not the biggest social media guy, therefore we have good balance in our relationship in our business. But I think he would rather invest our entire marketing budget into flying our salespeople to see their clients just to take them out for a beer. And I think there's something to be said for that as well. There's a balance between it. I mean, I always draw the, the parallel of, look, if you're a small business and you're a rowboat in the middle of the ocean, you can row like mad. But at some point, the waves are going to take you, and the current is going to take you where it's going to take you. So instead of fighting social media and fighting the waves and fighting how people want to engage you, you might as well just row with it. You'll be a lot less tired and a hell of a lot more effective. I love it. That's good. Let's do a lightning round, Bill. Let's do a lightning round on two things, both with relationships to your blogs and the, and the content you're, you're sending out to the airwaves. The first is I want to know what your favorite Brandivate blog post was and why. And maybe it's the same thing, but also the most read or responded to engaging type of blog posts for your fan base. My favorite blog, I would have to say, was one I wrote this past summer about, uh, it was called uh, Lunch Pail and Hard Hat, and it's about the value of work. I think sometimes people always want to find an easier or faster way, and sometimes you just have to work at it, and the comparison I used was after I fully ruptured my Achilles and I had surgery, it's the first major injury I've ever had in my life, never had a broken bone or anything, I would go to my physical therapist and he would say every day when I went there, and I would go three days a week for two hours each session, and it was brutal. And he would say, hope you brought your lunch pail and your hard hat because you're going to work, buddy. <laughs> and he was right. But I tell you what, I'm almost nine months exactly from the injury, um, I'm able to run two miles every morning. I'm walking without a limp. 
And you know, yeah, there's sometimes it swells up, and that'll end up going away here in the next few months. I was released three weeks early from the doctors. I was released two months early from physical therapy or whatever it was. And I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not put in the work. And so I really valued that work and I really liked the message it sent out. Instead of so many blogs I see are, hey, five surefire guaranteed ways to amp up your content marketing. I just, sometimes you just have to do the work. Right. And I feel like as a society, we always want the easy way out. Sorry, what was the second lightning round question? The second one is around salt and pepper. I hope listeners are familiar with salt and pepper, but maybe um, give us a little bit of foundation of what salt and pepper is and who you do it with and, and your favorite salt and pepper discussion or battle, as it were. Well, salt and pepper came out of uh, Kirby Hossman. I've known Kirby for, for 15 years, and he, he's a very good friend, and, and it was actually the night of my Achilles rupture. We were, we were out to dinner about an hour and 45 minutes before my unfortunate skipping incident. And we were talking about wanting to do something together. And I don't remember if it was him suggesting it or me, but we started talking about picking various topics that people just are uncomfortable talking about in our industry and kind of debating them in a very respectful, professional manner. From that, we obviously brought the promo kitchen. You guys liked it, and we started doing it every month. And we've taken on all sorts of topics, from you know ASI doing a late night infomercial to uh, the Staples acquisition of Accolade Promotions. I think my favorite one is has to be swag, because I think it's the one. Very rarely do Kirby and I really, you know, I think what what a lot of people would find interesting is sometimes, most of the time, we really agree on a stance on a subject, but we want to present both arguments. And so we've made a, a pact to so just kind of flip a coin. I'll take the pro, you take the con. With swag, it wasn't that way. When you say swag, the topic was the, the word swag. Is that a good word or yes. a bad word? Should we accept it, right? Or should we correct. battle against it, use promotional products or something more formal? That was correct. Yeah, I think it was, you know, should we use swag as an industry term? something along right. those lines. And I was firmly in the no category, and I'm still firmly in the no category, with the caveat. Look, if this works for people and their business, I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. I would never use it because I don't think I could pull off the word in front of a client. I think I'd feel foolish. I'd feel like I was just silly. For that same reason, I wouldn't want someone in a leadership position at PPAI or ASI to use the term swag because I feel like that would cheapen our industry. To me, it's a term like tchotchke or trinkets and trash. Yep. Kirby feels absolutely opposite, and we've had so much fun going back and forth on that one. That one sticks out. That, got, that one got people riled up. And then the most recent one I thought was pretty interesting, which we did that went out last week, which was a supplier selling direct. It was really a question of, Will they do it? It was when, they, you know, how quickly they will. And that one was a very interesting one. It's just there's topics we need to address as an industry. And if Kirby and I can kind of lay it out there in such a way where people feel it's safe to engage and say, okay, if he thinks that way, then maybe it's okay if I agree with him. Or it's okay if I disagree with him. Because honestly, we don't, Kirby and I don't keep score. It's not the purpose. The purpose is really to just make sure we're having important conversations that we really need to have in the industry. We can't stick our heads in the sand any longer on a lot of this stuff. And, and now you're bringing this, this salt and pepper thing to life. You guys are going to be doing a show at Expo and some of the regionals, right? That is correct. Salt and Pepper Live. It'll be a presidential style debate where I'll have 90 seconds, Kirby will have 90 seconds, then 30 second rebuttal, and then uh, we'll move on to the next topic. 
It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. I can't Thank you for doing that. I can't wait to be there. So, Bill, I've got one more question for you. And then after this, I'll give you the last word like we like to do with our guests before wrapping things up. But I've got a simple one. Knowing what you know now as an industry vet, if you were to be starting a distributor today at age 22 years old, what would you do in order to launch successfully in today's market? I would start by creating more of a media company where promotional products are part of the offering. Yeah. I, I, that's exactly what I would do. And I actually have thought about this. It's funny you even ask this because I've actually advised some of my clients to do this. Stop putting all your eggs into the promotional products basket. It's a good industry. But where is it going to be in five or ten years? Is it still going to be growing? Is it going to be declining? I think it's time to start looking at other services, video social media, there's other aspects where you can create almost a boutique marketing company and offer a heck of a lot more services and support them with a huge portion of the business being promotional products. Yeah. I don't know how a small promotional products distributorship looks in five years, but I think it's going to be very different than what it is right now. So if I was starting out, it would be a full service boutique marketing company with promotional products being a big part of it because there's still a lot of value. There's always going to be value in it and there's yeah. still a lot of profit into it. But I think you kind of need to look into the crystal ball and say, this is probably going to change. Yeah. Um, when we were at NALC, one of my favorite quotes that came out of uh, the North American Leadership Conference that PPTI held in August was, you know, the guy who used to make the best buggy whips in the 1860s probably right. never thought he was going to go out of business because he made the best buggy whips. And then the car came along and no one needed buggy whips anymore. Yeah. So we don't want to be in that position. Yeah. I think that's a great suggestion. And I also think it just moves things up the food chain and it means that you're not just seen as a peddler of commodities and you're a peddler of solutions and values. So we've been talking about this for a long time in the industry, but I think that hearing you say it that way makes it pretty clear. So Bill, last word, how can people find out more about you and your teachings and lessons? And Because I think more people in the industry, if they don't already know you, should know you. So why don't we go out on that note? My website is brandivatemarketing.com, B-R-A-N-D-I-V-A-T, marketing.com, and I'm all over social media, and so if you see me on social media, please engage me. One of the great things about our industry is the people. I, I don't know many people who wouldn't say that's probably one of their favorite things about the industry is the people, and so I love to engage with people. I learn from everybody I meet. And I love the free exchange of ideas. And, and hopefully over the next few years, we can continue to elevate our industry and what we do. And so it's really recognized as the true advertising medium it is. Bill, well, thank you so much. The time always flies whenever we speak with you. And I wanted to make sure that we had you on the podcast so that other people in the industry and part of the PK community could learn from you. So thank you so much. This was really uh, spectacular. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you guys very, very much. Really appreciate it. And love what you guys do with Promo Kitchen. It's, it's uh, inspiring. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.